0: Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to have on the program with me William Hartung. He is the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy. He is also a prolific writer on a range of issues and is widely sought after for expert opinion at major outlets. We are here today to discuss one of his books, *Profits of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military Industrial Complex. Bill, thanks for being on Acquisition Talk.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: So... I really enjoyed the book. There was just a ton of great information in there, and I especially liked the historical approach that you took. Uh, I think that now we have over 100 years of Lockheed, at least, but I want to start here in the 1960s. So can you describe the C5A program a little bit? How did Lockheed win that program?
1: Well, that was an interesting story because, of course, in the textbooks, the company that has the best product at the best price is supposed to win. Um, In this case, this was a huge transport aircraft, the the biggest one the Air Force had ever built, and it was supposed to be for uh, long-range transport of troops, even onto unimproved airfields. It was called by one official, uh, it's like having more bases around the world because you could get so many troops there, theoretically, on such short notice. And the there was an elaborate process with hundreds of people involved to choose the best plane. And the initial decision was to give it to Boeing. Boeing's price was a little higher, uh, 2.3 billion versus 1.9 billion of the Lockheed offer. Uh, But it was felt that it was the better plane to do the job. Uh, But Lockheed Martin had a lot of influence in its corner. Uh, The plane was going to be built primarily in Marietta, Georgia. Uh, which was the homestead of Richard Russell, who at that time was a legendary senator who ran both the Armed Services Committee and the Defense Appropriations Committee, and was a close friend of uh, President Johnson. Um, So he applied pressure to the Air Force to change their position, uh, as did Mendel Rivers, who ran the House Armed Services Committee. And Lockheed had promised, and some of the subcontractors had already done putting facilities in Rivers District to help influence him. So putting on that kind of pressure as well as some uh, internal lobbying, Lockheed was able to get them to reverse the decision and they went with the um, uh, the C5A, the, you know, their version of it, their design.
0: So one of the interesting things about the C5 that's notorious from an acquisition perspective is that it was kind of the pilot program for a new contracting method called the Total Package Procurement, or the TPP? What was that? Well,
1: that was an attempt to try to control costs and performance on big procurement programs. Uh, the prior system, you know, in simple form was: you get an R and D contract, uh, you finish that, then you project what you think the aircraft or other weapon is going to cost. And part of the problem with that is the company would get the R&D contract, they'd develop the technology, they'd be sort of part way in, and then they felt they had more leverage to charge whatever they chose for the procurement part because the government was already invested in them uh, in a significant way. So uh, one of McNamara's whiz kids, Robert McNamara, who came from the Ford Motor Company and was gonna be injecting new efficiency into the Pentagon. Uh, One of his people uh, decided we needed a different approach. So he came up with the TPP, which basically was, okay, right from the start, we want an estimate of the full package. What's the R&D gonna cost? What's the production gonna cost? What are your milestones? Uh, What performance characteristics? And then there would be consequences if the company didn't meet that, including fines. Of about a uh, one hundred and twelve thousand dollars per day, capped at eleven million. so the person who developed this form act America calls the toughest contract ever entered into by the Pentagon. and in testimony, Meckler said, "Oh, it's a you know it's a damn good contract." But it had some loopholes. First of all, very difficult to project over a ten year period or more what your costs are going to be. And what the companies would do is lowball it. Uh, they'd figure, well, we', will We'll come in with a, a lower price to get our foot in the door, and then later they'll be so invested in us that they'll have to just keep going. And this was uh, Ernie Fitzgerald, who was the whistleblower, who later exposed problems with the C5A. Said, well, you know, there's only two times to kill a program, and initially it's too soon, and then it's too late. You know, so there's no really optimal time uh, to roll back a program that's not working, and the TPP contributed to that. So, you know, first you had this kind of ability to lowball and, you know, make up later. And it was explicitly in the contract terms, because they had this thing called repricing, where basically, if you built a batch of them, and you didn't, uh, the company didn't make enough money, they could set a new base price for the next batch. And so there was a situation that developed where indeed, Lockheed uh, didn't do so well on the first batch. And then tried to jack up the prices on the second batch to more than make up for that. And that was one of the controversies that emerged with the plane. So this was the test run for this uh, contracting method and at least on the C-5A case, it, you know, there were disastrous consequences.
0: I thought it was interesting that uh, Robert Charles, who was that whiz kid that you were talking about that created the TPP under McNamara, he had this interesting quote where he was saying, well, we created the TPP in order to get away from this, quote, fuzzy notion that the government and industry should be partners. And then what he thought was the problem was well, the C5 contract came out with 1,500 pages of requirements and that responded with 240,000 pages from five different companies and that narrowed the scope of the contract. And they're all just competing on price because. They, they thought that they could get this kind of bailout later if they ran into technical troubles. Uh, I got this quote here from Ernest Fitzgerald, who you uh, brought up, who uh, blew the whistle on the cost growth of the C5 pretty early on. And I want you to react to it. He said, quote, one thing that I believe needs to be looked at is the relationship of government to big contractors. Are they part of the government? Should they be? If you can't allow them to go broke, you can't enforce contracts. So as I said earlier, we combine the worst features of a private monopoly and a government bureaucracy. You create something very akin to a Mussolini corporation, which were the most notoriously inefficient organizations ever put together by man, I believe. I see absolutely no reason for the big contractors to behave any differently now than they presently have been in this atmosphere. What do you think about that?
1: Well, aside from the Mussolini uh, reference, which I, I think, uh, I don't know if I would touch that, but um, in, in terms of the basic concept, you know, it's true, and we saw this in the case of Lockheed, uh, these, the government is so dependent on these companies uh, for so many different products and for the big systems that when push comes to shove, if the company threatens to walk away or says it's gonna threaten their existence, the government has limited leverage. And we saw that in um, the C-5A case. And one of the things that they talked about was maintaining the defense industrial base. And if, you know, if Lockheed Martin's not available, who will be? So there is that kind of synergy or perhaps symbiosis. And then, of course, there's the personnel who go back and forth between the government and industry, creating even a tighter bond. And uh, Project and Government Oversight just did a big report on the revolving door and they found, just in 2018, uh, something like 645 people going from government to work for one of the top 20 defense contractors. And then, of course, it swings the other way. Uh, we have an acting secretary of defense, Patrick Shanahan, is a former executive at Boeing. He was a big advocate of the Space Force, which is being introduced kind of at a more modest level than Trump initially discussed. And he worked on missile defense and related issues at Boeing, and he's also been charged uh, with perhaps ethics violations because he's been pushing a a new Boeing plane in preference to the F-35 and has been bad-mouthing Lockheed Martin inside the building. So, uh, you know, between the revolving door, the sheer size of these companies, I think it is hard to say where the company ends and the government begins. And that has lots of problems if you're trying to ride herd over them, get quality, get decent prices and so forth. And it was made worse in the 90s when there was a big merger boom uh, in the industry where Lockheed and Martin Marietta joined to become Lockheed Martin. Uh, Lockheed had previously bought uh, the aerospace division of General Electric and also General Dynamics fighter plane line in Texas. Northrop and Grumman merged. Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas, itself a product of a merger. So now you've got, you know, five big companies that control about $100 billion a year in Pentagon contracts, almost a third of what the department doles out. And Lockheed Martin alone in one recent year got $50 billion in government contracts, which is bigger than the uh, budget of most states in many countries and also uh, larger than the operating budget of the State Department. So when you've got these huge industrial conglomerates that are so dependent on government contracts, it becomes a bit of a two-way street. The Government also depends on them. And they sometimes do their interests being in the same direction as opposed to what we would like to see, which is that the government's actually regulating and monitoring these firms to try to get the best deal for the taxpayer and the best weapons for the armed forces.
0: Going back to the C-5 contract in Lockheed, after they exposed a great deal of the cost overruns and they went back to the government to recoup those costs because the contract for the TPP was quite tight and they stood to lose quite a bit of money the government gave them a good amount not everything that they asked for as you showed you showed that they paid out 757 million out of 1.3 billion in cost overrun claims and then lockheed asked for another 250 million dollar loan guarantee can you talk about how lockheed got on the verge of bankruptcy in the early 1970s and what happened there
1: well First of all, you had the C5A, as you mentioned, where the government uh, ate a lot of their cost overruns, but not all of them. Uh, they had also had programs like the Cheyenne helicopter uh, canceled uh, for performance problems and, you know, risks of crashes and things like that. Uh, and then their L-1011 airliner was rapidly losing market share uh, to Boeing and Douglas Aircraft, later McDonnell Douglas. Um, so, They were hurting on the commercial side, they were hurting on the defense side, and so they were in this position where they wanted these loan guarantees to fill the gap, and the theory was it would help them get the airliner back on track, start earning money for it. It was a huge fight in Congress. They won by a small margin in the House, and then by only one vote in the Senate, and uh, Senator Proxmire, William Proxmire, Wisconsin, well-known gadfly, and sort of You know, Watchdog was pushing against the uh, loan guarantees, basically saying the company should be allowed to fail. Otherwise, we're going to just be incentivizing uh, bad business practices and also the government having to dole out money to bail out these companies repeatedly. And, you know, the argument was, well, but if we do that, we're going to lose tens of thousands of jobs. You heard that from people like Alan Cranston of California, who had a lot of uh, lucky jobs in his state and others. And finally, what happened was they were down to the wire and Cranston who was kind of leading the forces for the bailout, uh, went to the senator uh, from Minnesota, Lee Metcalf, and said, you know, do you want it on your conscience that you've eliminated all these jobs? And Metcalf came over to the bailout side, and they won 49 to 48. So, he basically bought the jobs argument as the reason, not anything to do with efficiency or the performance of the company or, you know, where they going to provide good weapons for the troops? And, you know, during that process, Proxmire and others pointed out, well, you know, these jobs aren't going to go away. The government's still going to buy aircraft. And they may be at McDonnell Douglas or elsewhere, but it's not actually that you're going to lose all these jobs. Um, and it's also possible that parts of Lockheed that are more efficient could be restarted in some form or other. So this was like the big test at that time of, you know, is this company too big to fail? The same argument we had about the banks after the financial crisis of 2008. This was a kind of a forerunner of that. It was also around the time when when Chrysler received a government bailout. So it was sort of the beginning of the sort of the bailout era, I would say.
0: You showed throughout the book there how Lockheed and the other defense contractors as well, they kind of protected the flow of funds by using that jobs argument with Congress, who ultimately would be authorizing the programs for expenditure. One thing that I thought you said there that was really interesting was that a dollar on defense actually generates fewer jobs than the same dollar spent on education, health care, or infrastructure. And at one point, you estimated that In 2009, Lockheed made claims about how many jobs his F-22 program created, and you thought that was about twice as high as what it was in reality. Can you give us an intuition about why defense spending generates fewer jobs than these other sectors?
1: Yes. Part of it is it's high tech. It's almost more of a craft industry than mass production. So, you know, in a given year for aircraft, they might be building 50 or 70 or 80 whereas something like General Motors or Ford is building thousands, tens of thousands, and more vehicles. So it's it's not as big of a production force. There's also, uh, you know, they spend on lobbying and high executive salaries and so forth, which are not big job creators. And, you know, whereas other activities like infrastructure, uh, alternative energy, education, create more jobs, partly because they're just more labor-intensive. Uh, sometimes there's an issue that, workers in the defense industry are more highly paid, uh, engineers and such. But if you look at kind of the average compensation across the industry, it's not that different from some of these industries that create more jobs. So, you know, the real issue politically is where are the jobs located? You know, so even if you had more jobs nationally, more teachers, more people building roads, more people retrofitting houses for energy efficiency, they would tend to be spread out. So the places where uh, defense industry is concentrated, uh, like Connecticut and St. Louis, Missouri, and to some degree, you know, Orlando, Florida, and a number of others, Dallas, Texas area, they wouldn't benefit in the same way, even though you might have more jobs nationally in total, you would have job losses in these sort of hubs of defense production. So, you know, the challenge is, can we just accept that? Is there a way to look at alternative jobs that target those particular localities and regions. Uh, There has been some work on that by the Pentagon's Office of Economic Adjustment, which helps communities plan ahead and uh, has done a good job helping communities turn around in the aftermath of base closings, where a lot of cases, they can actually create more civilian jobs over time than existed at the base. Uh, But on the manufacturing side, there haven't, hasn't been that kind of progress or that kind of focus. So, so it's really almost kind of an issue of domestic politics more than economics when it comes to this jobs equation.
0: I thought it was interesting that you see the defense contractors, they come around and they try to spread out some of their work to where there's important congressmen or senators, and then they kind of give these brochures even about how many jobs are in each of the localities by a state and by a district for how many jobs are there for that program. But then you showed in your book that when it came to the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter that had international participants, you saw Lockheed was saying, well, the F-35 isn't a jobs program. We're not here to spread around additional money to these international partners, and that can be inefficient. So I thought it was interesting that you saw this dichotomy between what they're saying, the spreading the the funds across countries for the F-35 versus how they kind of did it uh, within the United States, and it seemed a little bit more politically palatable there.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, just in the last year, there was a $10 billion deal to help set up an assembly plant for the F-35 in Italy, and there's a similar one being built in Japan, both to assemble aircraft and also to uh, assemble engines for the aircraft. So these will be hubs for their respective regions, so that a lot of the work, uh, at least on the sales of the F-35, will happen overseas. And that's not often talked about when the companies make the case here for the aircraft, or certainly when uh, President Trump brags about defense industry jobs. But the process of arguing about jobs in specific states or districts has kind of been accepted as just business as usual. In fact, occasionally I'll watch the debate on the floor over the defense bill and you'll find more members standing up to kind of salute whatever project is built in their state uh, than to talk about policy. And it's sort of understood well, nobody's going to vote against something that creates jobs in their district. The problem with that is if everybody does that, it's very hard to change the Character of the defense budget, not just the amount, but also the composition. So, even if you weren't talking about reducing the Pentagon budget, there would still be issues of sort of friction. You know, if you want to move from maybe reliance on F 35s to greater reliance on unmanned aerial vehicles or, you know, a different aircraft, there'll be a lot of flack from the places where the F 35 is already built. Sometimes they solve that by doing both. Uh, They've done that in shipbuilding, sharing ships between. Newport News, Virginia, and Electric Boat Plant in Connecticut. So, yeah, you know, the the jobs question is paramount, and it's kind of like the argument of the last resort for systems that might not otherwise be built or built in the quantities uh, that we're now building them.
0: Another thing I think that's interesting about that is that you tend to see, whereas in the Department of Defense, a lot of the production is kind of spread out according to this logic, you're starting to see in the market economy you see cities agglomerating a lot of skills within relevant sectors and you see these economies of agglomeration going on and higher returns to more people kind of being together spillovers from each other potentially due to the security and other reasons that might not be something for the department of defense but i just think there's an interesting dichotomy there
1: yeah i mean i think the the hope of some of the places that are competing for defense contracts is that there be a spillover in, in other tech sectors. That you'll you'll have a group of skilled workers who can work on a variety of high tech uh, projects and so forth. I mean, you've seen that with universities certainly uh, that have had government contracts. So uh, Route Twenty One Twenty Eight, Boston, Silicon Valley, a lot of them were fed by universities with government contracts for both defense and, and other items. But it, it cuts both ways because you get that dependency so that if there are ups and downs either in your program or the Pentagon budget, communities can be on hard times. And also sometimes the skills aren't fully transferable, uh, just in the sense that um, you know cost is not the most important factor in defense contracts. They often reach for kind of the gold-plated solution pushed by the Pentagon and the services. In many cases. So I think there is some of that effect. I mean, certainly locality with limited industry would push hard to get a aircraft production facility or something like that. So that's another part of the challenge, I think, in, in terms of how you would shift gears in defense production.
0: Whereas the defense industry tends to kind of use a jobs argument with Congress in the U.S., you were showing that back in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, that Lockheed and other U.S. firms were outright bribing foreign officials to sell aircraft, such as to Japan, Germany, Italy, Saudi Arabia, and some others. And when news of it broke, you showed how Lockheed's CEO kind of compared himself to Nixon after Watergate. He thought that both of them were kind of engaging in these normal, perhaps unseemly activities, and then, quote, all of a sudden there's a different set of standards, end quote. So what changed there and why was it different internationally versus domestically in how they approached uh, selling a program?
1: Well, part of the thing is that bribery was essentially legal in foreign sales. Uh, So uh, in that sense, the companies could engage in it. They they usually did uh, by commission. So they'd use a the middleman, but that middleman would then distribute the bribes. There was a case in Indonesia where the armed forces wanted to get the payments directly. And there was actually a debate within Lockheed about whether it would make it harder for take, taking the bribes off against their taxes. Uh, so that's how acceptable it was. I think what changed was the mood of the country. Uh, you know, As we led into the Nixon era and beyond, uh, there was a lot more criticism of corporations there was a, the Frank Church, Center from Idaho, had a whole uh, investigation of multinational corporations. Eventually, in 1978, under the aegis of Senator Proxmire, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was created, which, which actually made foreign bribery illegal. So it was kind of just accepted practice and, you know, bribery and international procurement and certainly other countries were doing it as well, but it went to amazing extents in some places. Uh, certainly in Saudi Arabia, where and Khashoggi made hundreds of millions of dollars working with U.S. and European countries as the middleman for sales to that country. In Japan, Lockheed bribed everybody from the prime minister to the heads of the airlines to government ministers and others, uh, major business figures, to get contracts for its L-1011 airliner. And that blew up in Japan as a scandal. And there was actually much more consequence for the people in Japan receiving the bribes and then for Lockheed that was giving the bribes. So prime minister eventually went to jail. Uh, there were other serious fines and jail terms and it was sort of like their Watergate in the sense that there were televised hearings, people would put aside their daily activities to you know watch what was going on and so forth. Uh, now here uh, Lockheed executives lost their jobs and they also after some back and forth lost the ability to get major consulting contracts after they stopped working at Lockheed. So they did pay a price, but it wasn't like going to prison. And it it wasn't the same issue in the public mind as some other scandals, you know, like Watergate itself, for example. So, yeah, I think a lot of it was just kind of a double standard, you know, that outright bribery overseas being legal was accepted here it was more things like pork barrel politics and the revolving door and indirect influence where occasionally there would be a direct personal gain you know but but often it was it was done um, in a more subtle way
0: moving along into the 1980s we started to see these spare parts scandals where there was a great deal of overpricing Uh, You had like the $600 toilet seat cover, I learned from your book that it was not the toilet seat but the cover, and the $7,000 coffee maker. And you had Congressman William Cohen, who later became Secretary of Defense. He was looking at this and saying, well, if these are the best prices that industry can give us, why doesn't the Pentagon start doing some more in-house production? But of course, the decline of the Navy bureaus and the Army technical services had been going on for a long time. And it was actually in the 1970s that I believe OMB Circular A76 basically put a nail in the coffin for the technical services in in in-house production. But there seems to be some logic behind in-house production. Uh, Ronald Coase, the economist, said that the more uncertain production is the less likely you'd want to be able to use a contract because you'd be incurring a lot of transaction costs due to the uncertainty and the change in conditions over time. So what do you think about growing the DOD's in-house capabilities? Or do you think it's really just more about procurement reform in of itself and how do we do better contracts?
1: Uh, I think it's a mixture of the two. Um, I don't see having, you know, nationalizing the defense industry and having government, you know, build large systems. But I think on things like spare parts, it might be an interesting option. Uh, There's been a few cases where government personnel have come up with solutions uh, for spare parts and replacements that have been substantially cheaper than what industry does. I mean, industry charges a lot of overhead. And, you know, sometimes they use the spare parts to kind of make up for what they might have lost on other aspects of production of an aircraft, for example, so I, I think on a on a smaller scale, there, there could be a role for government kind of technical capability uh, in certain areas. But uh, you know, I, I think as you're suggesting, that capability have to be rebuilt.
0: So I wanted you to talk a little bit about what the defense industry looked like after the Cold War. How did it affect Lockheed?
1: Well. There was a period where, because there was a reduction in spending, not to the degree that might have been warranted, but certainly a reduction, the companies were scrambling. And um, William Perry, uh, the Clinton uh, defense secretary, said at some point, he had a meeting called The Last Supper with the contractors, and he basically said, look to your left and look to your right. One of you is going to go out of business in the next couple of years, you know, to these industry executives, and so the Clinton administration encouraged mergers of defense companies to sort of deal with this fall off in Pentagon contracts, and there were even some incentives provided, you know, uh, they helped pay for some of the costs, you know, with government funds of closing down facilities, Uh, they even paid um, some of the golden parachutes or contributed to payment of golden parachutes to people who came off boards when they were merged, um, boards of directors or top executives, et cetera. So the the government was giving both a policy signal and some financial support. And their argument was they would save money down the road on reduced overhead because you wouldn't have companies running half-full factories, struggling economically. You'd have more efficient, larger firms. Those benefits never really panned out, partly because you created these huge behemoths that had even more bargaining power than their predecessors. You know, so Lockheed Martin, uh, when they pushed the F-35, uh, claimed to have a presence in all 50 states. And when I looked at that, in some states, the presence was pretty minimal. In fact, they had a little interactive map on their website uh, that showed how many jobs you could get in each state, and you just clicked on it. And for Nebraska, one of the states they counted in their ledger, uh, they said there was one direct job and three indirect jobs, so four jobs in the state of Nebraska related to the F-35. And, of course, these were Lockheed's, Lockheed Martin's numbers, so how accurate they were was also point of contention. But anyway, so sort of the solution of government and industry to the post-Cold War uh, drop-off was not, you know, let's convert to different activities, let's build up the civilian... Sector, but rather, you know, this merger boom, and that gave us Northrop Grumman, Lockheed Martin, the Boeing purchase of McDonnell Douglas, and you know, Lockheed Martin recently bought Sikorsky helicopters, and they call these their legacy companies. In Lockheed Martin's case, I believe they absorbed close to two dozen defense companies or portions of defense companies in building up to the the size they are today. So that was an important turning point, I think, in the shape of the industry.
0: Yeah, I think it was interesting that you kind of saw these waves of consolidation that kind of always were trending towards the industry that we have now where you have two, maybe three competitors on any given commodity. So it was back in the early 70s after the Vietnam War, you saw contractors, boards who were saying, How are we going to get out of the defense industry, right? How are we going to diversify and compete commercially? And time and time again, they kind of failed at doing that. So I think it was it's interesting that we see Lockheed most of its revenues come from the federal government or sales to international governments. Very few comes from kind of commercial sales of consumer goods or uh, non-defense government-type goods. But within government. Lockheed and other defense firms are able to diversify quite well, right? For Lockheed, they've diversified from aircraft into missiles, ships, helicopters, satellites and much more. And then it's not only just in the Department of Defense, Lockheed is very good at winning contracts for NASA, the CIA, Department of Energy State Justice Transportation. You showed how Lockheed was one of the top contractors for virtually all of the major departments in government. So the question here is, are defense contractors specialists in military technologies, or are they really specializing in government compliance and capture?
1: I think it's the latter. I mean, I think the most important part of the business model uh, for a company like Lockheed Martin is how do you get the contract? You know, and, and they're seeking a smaller number of very large contracts as opposed to pitching to millions of consumers as an you know, as a consumer oriented company would do. So if they're not good at marketing themselves to government and influencing government, they're not going to prosper as a company. Uh, but sometimes that comes at the expense of uh, quality and cost of the goods they're actually uh, selling. Now, of course, they hire talented people. And sometimes when they diversify in the defense sector, it's by buying the capability. You know, So they bought General Dynamics F-16 line, which has been a very successful export item. Um, all the big companies have been buying uh, small tech and cybersecurity companies in recent years. You know, so there's that element. Also, Lockheed Martin developed information technology skills, which which they've used to win contracts from many different government agencies. Uh, they even try, tried to get involved in state and local contracting, which failed. Uh, but they used the same model. Uh, they hired former uh, social services directors from different states just as they might you know hire a former federal official if they were you know pitching a weapon system and that model didn't work for various reasons including they just couldn't quite get the hang of the local politics so in Texas when they tried to get a contract essentially running the welfare system in, in terms of uh, screening people of who should get work and who could stay on a traditional, you know, payment system and so forth. They ran up against Ross Perot's company, which had a lot of local clout. Um, also, in privatizing it, there was some question: what would happen to the public service union? Uh, they did a big campaign against Lockheed Martin. They even referenced the, the uh, spare parts, you know, scandals of the 80s. They said, you know, they had a radio ad with a toilet flushing, and they said, you know, do you want the company that made the $600 toilet? running public services in the state of Texas. So they decided, you know, the state and local stuff was a bridge too far uh, compared to just lobbying for federal government contracts.
0: Do you think it's the terms and provisions from the federal government, such as contract regulations, the planning systems that they require, um, and a lot of these other processes, do you think that it's actually being good at capturing government contracts makes you ill-suited to do commercial-type work?
1: Well, I think there's kind of this interaction between the Pentagon and the contractors where the, yeah, the proposals are quite complex, so you need a bureaucracy and a team uh, just on proposal development and compliance that some smaller companies would have a much harder time uh, pulling together. Or even a commercial company that wanted to move into the Pentagon uh, sector. So you build sort of like a built-in bureaucracy on the corporate side and the government side. That's part of the process. And then, of course, government changes the uh, you know what they want over time. Could the plane go a little faster? Uh, could it have more um, capability to carry different weapon systems? Um, could it be stealthier and so forth? And so. You know, if those things happen along the way after contracts, initial contracts already been signed, uh, what's sometimes called requirements creep, then you know there's some responsibility on the part of the Pentagon for driving up costs and and you run into problems, I think, of performance if you're making the systems more complex as you go. And I, I think part of the problem with the F-35 is they were asking it to do so many things. You know, they want variants of it to land on. Aircraft carrier have a vertical takeoff and landing capability for the Marines. Uh, do close air support, do bombing, uh, do aerial dogfights with other aircraft, and so that's a lot to ask of one model. And it ends up, to some degree, that there's a, a lot of separate work. But the idea was, you know, you'd be using most of the same spare parts. You'd get economies of scale, uh, but actually. There's not nearly as much overlap among the variants of the F-35 as was originally hoped. You know, so I I think in a lot of cases, just the government contracting process combined with the sort of historical knowledge and practice of the companies of how they go about influencing government to get the contracts, um, you know, that's a huge impediment to, uh, you know, getting the kind of systems that would be optimal.
0: I think the F-35 point that you made there was pretty interesting because it reminds me again for the F-35 back in 2002 when they went through Milestone B and then they let that big systems development design contract for all of those models, right, all the variants that were supposed to do multiple missions, um, it kind of reminds me of the total package procurement kind of concept where, again, you're requiring these big contracts, many billions of dollars over many years. And uh, I think that it seems that these contract types almost mirror the industry that is required to perform it. So we didn't see any kind of hedging programs of smaller scale in single mission designs, right? There was no competitor to the F-35 being developed over that time. And that kind of locked the government in on a single program which basically locked in the incumbent to that program for a monopoly going forward. What do you think about the ability of just having hedging designs of a tolerance that might be required out of Congress and the Office of the Secretary of Defense for these types of competitions, as opposed to economizing through economies of scale, which tend never to materialize? It was the same argument with the TFX, the F-111, that you could have you know, one design, one training program, one spare parts program for the Navy and the Air Force, and it didn't really materialize.
1: Yeah, I think sort of the winner-takes-all forever approach uh, that we see in the F-35 has a lot of downsides. I mean, now they're accepting aircraft that they know are deficient. They're, they're gonna have to do retrofits. There's many things they're supposed to be able to do that they're not yet able to do president government oversight has written in a few different times you know is the f-35 ever going to be fully ready for combat so you know that system has not worked well i I think if you had rival designs uh, i think at least you'd have options you know if one thing is going uh, seriously wrong and also the government would have more leverage uh, if not relying on one company because once you had the f-35 you know you've, you've downsized the number of Uh, companies that are doing uh, full-scale production of combat aircraft, and so you've got Boeing building the F-15, the F-18, now there's an F-15X that uh, Secretary Shanahan has been pushing, and that's raised a lot of ethics questions because he's a former Boeing executive pushing a Boeing program that initially the Air Force didn't even ask for. So you're getting down to a small handful of companies uh, that can build these things. And also, um, it seems like smaller, focused programs that aren't trying to do too many things at once have been more successful, like the A-10 or the F-16, uh, than these big, complex, winner-takes-all, multiple, across-the-board kind of you know, contracts like the F-35. Yeah,
0: it seems that... For at least uh, fighter airframes, we are just basically down to Boeing and, and Lockheed. Northrop doesn't really play in that space anymore, but they seem to have captured the long-range bombing space. But it seems that if you were going to hedge with Lockheed, basically Boeing, If Shan- either way, Shanahan's hands are a little bit tied there because if he wanted to move away from Lockheed, the only one that seemed to be available was Boeing which was his former company. And the Air Force, you're right, they did not want the F-15X. And maybe the F-15X wasn't the right program. But I do like the idea of these hedging programs just because of the fact that it almost gives you kind of like an experimental control to some degree, where if you're looking at the F-35, let's say, without any hedging programs, well, you can't really be sure whether it's a bad program or not because – there might be a lot of great capability gains, and the costs might have just been inevitable, and you just couldn't be sure whether another competitor could have done better. But if you actually materialize some kind of follow-ons, then you have this experimental control where you can see relative productivity.
1: Yeah, I have something to measure against. Yeah, because I, I'm a critic of the F-35, but it's not like I could build one, you know. So, um, right, you're, you're a little bit. Um, you know, stuck if there's only one example Um, because then it's, well uh, did they um, you know, just set the specs too high that, you know, no company could have reached them Um, did they make a mistake in trying to have it do so many different things you know, how much is the responsibility of the contractor how much is just they they overshot what the capabilities could ever be Uh, how much is uh, interference and changing requirements uh, from the Pentagon or the Air Force. So, yeah, if if there's only one example to look at, it's a little harder to sort all those things out.
0: So what made you want to write a book about Lockheed Martin in the first place? And where do you see for the future of that company?
1: Well, I um was working at a – initially, my, my first job was
0: at the um,
1: – Council on Economic Priorities in New York, which was a think tank uh, that worked on themes of corporate social responsibility. And my initial assignments were things like looking at how regions might reduce their dependence on uh, Pentagon spending. I wrote a newsletter on uh, global arms manufacturing companies and also on the top 100 uh, defense contractors. And the more I looked at the history of Lockheed and and then Lockheed Martin, the more they seemed to be involved in kind of every important stage, uh, both good and ill, of uh, the military industrial complex, the defense industry. So they started with a couple brothers, you know, in the teens of the uh, 1900s. Uh, They were then bought out by investors and became a huge company after production uh, of tens of thousands of aircraft uh, for World War II. Um, They were part of the kind of lobbying in the post-World War drop-off after World War II for a a higher, sort of permanently high defense budget of the kind that led um, Eisenhower to coin the term military-industrial complex. Uh, They were involved in one of the first big cost overruns at the C-5A, uh, involved in the bribery scandal, uh, the first major bailout, Uh, the spare parts controversies of the 80s, uh, the merger boom in the 90s, and some of these sort of biggest projects like the F-35, which may turn out to be the most expensive program, not the most expensive weapon, uh, but program as a whole uh, ever undertaken by the Pentagon. So they just seem to touch all the bases. If you wanted to look at how the military-industrial complex evolved, you know, this would be a good place to start, and I, I did work uh, quite a bit. You know, I, I sort of cut my teeth writing about the merger process uh, in particular, and I interviewed the Norm Augustine, the head of uh, Lockheed Martin, about that. Um, I, I worked with uh, offices like Representative Sanders when he was still in the House, who actually um, sponsored legislation to claw back. Some of the money that the U.S. government had given to subsidize these mergers, he called it payoffs for layoffs because, you know, they were laying off at the low end and they were giving big payouts to people at the, you know, executive end of these uh, companies. So um, it it just it was almost like Lockheed Martin found me, you know, all the different things I worked on, Pentagon spending, arms sales, missile defense. They were just a major player. And so that, that's sort of how it emerged. That and the fact that uh, my agents, uh, my book agents really pushed it uh, from different perspectives. One of them had stock in Lockheed Martin. He thought they were a great investment. Uh, so he wanted sort of a business story. One of them was quite critical of Lockheed Martin and its ro- role as sort of a centerpiece of the military-industrial complex. So all those things combined uh, to, to lead me to, to write the book.
0: In the end... In the 1990s, after the Cold War, do you think there was any kind of argument or what kind of ideas would have to be present for Congress to have been able to kind of push back on this consolidation and push back on on these kind of golden parachutes for for the layoffs?
1: Well, I think there would have had to been a sense that there's more than one way to do these things and that possibly trimming the number of companies, at least the number of big companies wouldn't have been the end of the world, or having them exist in in a smaller form could have still created possibly a more competitive industry than what you saw with the big mergers. I think there had to be some attention to how you deal with uh, layoffs and economic impacts. Uh, There were some efforts like that after the Vietnam War. Um, The Clinton administration did have some ideas uh, about diversification for these companies but uh, sometimes those went astray like you know one idea for diversification was well let them sell weapons overseas which wasn't really diversification so uh, so i think you know a willingness to see a more diversified industry some effort to deal with the economic uh you know fallout and of course just less dependence on these companies politically because you know, not only is there the jobs card, but there's the revolving door with the federal government and members of Congress and staff who also go back and forth between the companies and government. There's campaign contributions, which I think are a lesser but important factor. You know, they don't, defense industry doesn't give as much money as, say, you know, pharmaceuticals or banking or uh, some of these other players. Uh, But I think it's the combination of things. It's it's the campaign contributions, it's the jobs, it's the revolving door, it's a kind of like laser-like focus on funding the people most able to help them, uh, members of the armed services committee, defense appropriations, members who have facilities in their states or districts Mm -hmm. to create that kind of coalition in Congress uh, that we saw uh, that, for example, even going back to funding the bailout of, of Lockheed, you know, way back when. So, uh, I, I think there'd have to be a more critical sense of the defense industry and, and also a, a willingness to have a little more distance between government and industry so government could actually be more of a monitor and regulator than a sort of partner uh, with industry.
0: William D. Hartung, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk.
1: Yes, thanks so much for having me.
0: This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.